Listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, Assault Studios production. We all know that the first job you take after university may not be the right one. So when things don't work out, it's understandable to feel disheartened. The truth is, you need to experience opportunities, both good and bad, to be able to grow in your career. Felicity Fury understood what this was like when she started her first job as a structural engineer. She learned that the position didn't suit her skill set and preferences. This learning experience allowed her to explore other employment opportunities. Soon, she was able to get a position in the Brisbane City Council, where she was much more suited. In this episode, Felicity shares her career journey and how it led to her being recognised as one of Australia's most prominent figures in engineering. Felicity, we spoke in the previous episode about your education. What did you do once you got your degree? Well, I applied for heaps of jobs. I applied before I got my degree because that's kind of how it works in engineering. You apply about a year ahead. And I was very fortunate to get offered four jobs and then had the opportunity to choose which one I took, which is pretty cool. Yeah, you must have been in a really unique position. I guess if you're applying for jobs a year out, that would indicate that there's not that many of them out there? Yeah, it was an interesting time. So I graduated at the end of 2007. So it was a bit of a boom time in engineering, which can happen sometimes as you get lots of projects. Like right now with the COVID rebuild, we've got a lot of infrastructure projects. So being a civil engineer, it certainly helps when the government's doing things like that. So in 2008, there was a lot of job opportunities available. So a couple of key things I was looking for were companies with lots of variety, a lot of opportunities. And yeah, I was um, very lucky to have four offers on the table, which then meant I had to choose, which became quite difficult. So how did you go through that process? Well, there was a couple of jobs in construction and I'd had some experience in construction before and it's so exciting being out on a construction site, but I also knew how hard people worked and you often work on Saturdays and I thought, well, if I can get paid the same working in an office and one of the companies offered half a day on Friday, I thought that's pretty cool. So that was part of my reasoning. I ended up being a structural engineer, which I have to say was probably the most terrible jobs I've ever had and I did that for about 18 months. Without naming names, why was it a terrible job? It wasn't the company, it was more me because I'm not very good at detail and when you're a structural engineer, it turns out you've got to do a lot of calculations and do a lot of detail. So, you know, a plus or a minus here means my whole model gets stuffed and then I spend days reworking it trying to figure out where that tiny little error was. And so, yes, I wasn't great at that job. I could do it, but it took a lot of energy and a lot of effort for for me to get that done. So luckily I got made redundant in the global financial crisis and that was actually a really good thing because I think if I hadn't, I probably would have tried to stick it out and tried to be really good at that job, even though it wasn't my strengths. Okay, so newly unemployed, what did you do next? Well, I think I spent about two weeks sitting on a beanbag eating ice cream and crying because that was in kind of safe engineering world where I am a very risk adverse person. I'd never not had a job. So it really was quite a shock. And then I applied for a whole range of different gigs and ended up getting a job at Brisbane City Council, which was not a place that I would ever have expected that I would work. And I got a role as a project manager. So they said, this guy's leaving in two weeks. You can have his projects. 
So I then, uh, within a few months, had a project portfolio of $45 million and I was 23 years old. So it was a big jump in the deep end. How'd you deal with that? I had a really great manager and I think a lot of support from the team. And I remember feeling very overwhelmed. And one day, one of my colleagues said to me, Mary wouldn't have given you all those projects if she didn't think you could handle it. And that was a real game changer for me. It had me really step up and go, how can I do this? What do I need to do to work this out? And there was a really great trust in the team. And so it meant looking at how can I do the best job that I can do, whether that means staying back late, doing extra research, figuring out how to do the job. Uh, I ended up doing a deployment in project management, which also really helped. What sort of percentage was teamwork involved in that? So, I mean, you've obviously, your manager's given you a whole bunch of tasks, a whole bunch of projects to work on. Did you have a team at your disposal that you could bring in when needed? So I was working in the major infrastructure projects office. So we were basically a project manager office, which made sure the projects would happen. So as the project manager, I had to see the project through from start to finish. So that was this at the time it was road projects. And then I moved on to bikeway projects. So we would have to get the project design. So we might have to use external consultants. We'd use an internal design team. We'd have a a procurement team, which means going out and getting contracts and saying to people, will you build this road? How much will it cost? reviewing all of that. So there was a huge, huge team of people. And that's what I really loved about working in that role is that I got to work with so many people. And it actually helped me discover what my strengths were and that engineers can work with people and we need people, people in engineering just as much as we need the detail person. What's good teamwork to you? Good teamwork to me is being open, sharing your mistakes, sharing what you're good at, what you're not good at, being accountable, uh, having integrity, and I think having a good a good rhythm for working as a team. So being clear exactly what the expectations are and making that, that really obvious. So I definitely um, make sure that we get really highly accountable as a team to be able to work together. Has that always happened throughout the course of your career? Oh, definitely not. My people pleaser would just want to make everyone happy. I really learned a hard lesson about this when I started my not-for-profit and I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never started a company before. I just wanted to do something and go make a difference in women and engineering. And about three years in, we had all of our volunteers quit, except for me and my co-founder. We lost all our funding. So we had three years committed funding. They said, we're not going to renew for a third year. So I was looking pretty bad and I had to look at myself and go, as a leader, what can I be responsible for? And I think I didn't do a good job of um, having a vision and then supporting people to deliver on that. I just went, I don't know what I'm doing. You Just figure it out. Like, just go do things. And I think people actually really need that support from a leader, not the micromanagement, but support to be able to be clear around what we're expecting and what we need to do. So what was some of the feedback you were hearing from these people who were leaving? I think part of it was just really not having strongly developed leadership skills myself. But I think, you know, you learn on the job. So they, you know, they're still some of my good friends today. So I think I didn't burn the bridges. They were very overworked and we had a small team and, in the first year of the program, we ran 10 events. Everyone's a volunteer. We all did it on top of a full-time job. So I think it wasn't really understanding that. Um, as the founder, you put in so much 
effort. And I think the founders will always put in way more than a staff member or a volunteer because it's your project, it's your thing. And that can often make businesses uh, not viable because it means that someone else, you can't just hire someone to do that role. So when I handed over our program, we needed to create eight roles to replace the work I was doing just because there were so many different aspects of it. And I don't mean to say that like, I'm so amazing. I'm, I do the work of eight people. It was just the nature of, I'm just really care and I'm passionate. So I think it's really respecting what people want to get out of something and being mindful that if it is a volunteer opportunity, uh, then, you know, but even if it's a work opportunity, people have lives outside of that as well. Must be a pretty big kick in the guts to have a bunch of people who come to you and say, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, off I go. As a leader, how did you deal with that? I remember the conversation when the last volunteer left and I called my co-founder. I was standing on my balcony in Sydney and overlooking this palm tree and I said to her, like, do we just quit? Do we just stop what we're doing? Because that was an option. It would be very easy to walk away, right? you got no funding, you got no people, come, you know, pack up shop, away you go. But for us, what we were doing, which was encouraging more women and different people and regional students into engineering, that is just too big a course for us to, to not do. And so it was actually, we turned it into an opportunity. And that's a real mindset that I bring to a lot of things is how can we make this an opportunity? So we ended up rebuilding the organization and it was a great opportunity to go, we've got nothing. So let's rebuild it in the right way and actually apply what we've learned so far about leadership to make something really sustainable. And the organization still continues today. Uh, the end of this year, it'll be 10 years since we've been going. So that's pretty cool. So how did you rebuild it? Well, we got someone who knew something about people. So our next volunteer was a HR person, Carly Smart. She's such a legend. And she was a HR person for a mid-tier construction company. And I met her, her at an event and she created this concept with me called succession planning and talent management, which I'd never heard of. And, you know, part of it is as a leader, you've got to be humble and listen to advice. So she helped us create a new plan, find some key people, and then start to, to build those roles out and do proper role descriptions and kind of those basics that, you know, when you're just like, I just want to go and do, we didn't kind of fill in, in at the back end. So that really helped. Was anyone there to teach you leadership or was it just a matter of diving in the deep end and giving it a go? Definitely diving in the deep end and having a vision of, I want to do this. How can I make that work? So I, you'll find me talking to a lot of people. And I think that's how I solve problems is by talking it through with somebody and being open to ideas. So not being attached to, we're going to do it this way, but bringing on experts. And that's been a really big help for me throughout my journey. You are clearly a leader within your industry now. How are you different from that person back then who started a not-for-profit and it didn't go so well in the early stages? My previous leadership style was there was no style. I was just doing things. But I think part of that when you're starting out is about just giving things a go and it almost doesn't matter. Like you don't have to work out your style perfectly. It's just about trying things and you figure it out along the way. So a lot of the work I've done has been self-taught, asking mentors, asking for advice. But I had a problem to work on. I like, I want to create this. How do I do it? So Part of my style now is because I've done a lot of personal development and a lot of soul searching around what are my strengths, what am I good at, what's going to be best for the organization. Yeah, it's definitely been a journey. You mentioned there the personal development. Is that reading books? Is it doing courses, listening to podcasts? How are you doing that? A lot of personal development, doing courses, 
you know, I, I feel like I'm a bit of a course junkie sometimes. And I did a lot of work with Landmark Education, which really supported me um, in looking at where, what are my blind spots? What's holding me back? What are my filters? What of what are my preconceived ideas about things? And that really helped. Yeah, a lot of reading books. I set myself a challenge last year to read a book a month, which I did. And then this year it's been a book a week. So I don't know if I'm going to quite get there, but I think I'm on track to do about 40, 45 books. And that's made a incredible difference to myself as a leader and, and learning. In terms of what? Being open to ideas and often I'll read a book and think, how am I going to possibly remember all these amazing things? And then I'll be speaking at an event and someone will ask me this curly question and I'll go, oh, that book's so amazing. There's this piece of gold in here. And so it's helped me be a better leader because I can offer real resources and tangible support to the people that I'm leading. Rattle off a few names for me. What books have you been reading over this year? Favourite ones this year, Who Not How by Dan Sullivan, which talks about it's not about you know what you know, it's about finding the who to actually go and, and deliver um, that thing. I'm going to go with this one, which is on my shelf, which is What Happened to You by Oprah and Bruce Parry. And they frame the question instead of saying what's wrong with you, say what happened to you, because it's not about something being wrong with a person, but actually what's that story of their past that has them think the way they do. You're clearly someone with a lot of drive. Where do you think that drive comes from? Because not everyone's got it. In some ways, I just feel like I'm like everybody else. I'm like, I'm just a regular person doing regular things. Anyone can do what I do. I'm not special. I don't know a lot of stuff. I just go do things and talk to people. But then you're right, there's not everyone who's gone out and done the things that I've done. So it's a tricky question because I think that keeps me in check of, you know, I don't want to be this kind of like I'm special, I've got something different. I feel I fully believe that anyone can do what I've gone and done and there are certainly people who start this journey younger than me or older than me. So I really believe anyone can do it. So I think it's part of it is just really authentically connecting with what you want to do with your life and saying, we have this opportunity, you may as well do something great with your life. And that's a perspective that I look from. And it's certainly incredibly challenging starting businesses, but I love a challenge. And so I think if I wasn't doing this, I'd be so bored and feel like I was wasting my life. So I figure there's, I may as well go do something amazing with it. And I certainly have a privileged upbringing. You know, I'm like a, a white female from middle-class Australia growing up in Brisbane. There's certainly advantage and privilege that comes with that. So sometimes it might take a bit more effort for other people to kind of get to those points. So I certainly acknowledge that as well. Do you think in universities we teach enough of the entrepreneurial mindset or is that something that needs a lot more attention? We definitely do not teach the entrepreneurial mindset enough. It's, I think a lot of the time we teach people to go be employees and it's interesting. I'm working with quite a number of international students and not every, saying every international student's like this, but a lot of cultures are grown up with, you wrote, learn. And so now they're in an Australian university and we're saying you need to think for themselves and that's quite difficult. So I think we don't teach enough how to think for yourself, how to be creative, how to express yourself, how to do personal development. It's, it can be a lot around uh, knowledge and being able to get information to do to do a job. And I think we should be doing a lot more entrepreneurial mindset work. How could we change that? I don't think it's about reading a book about it. I think a book will open up your mind to an idea 
But this one I think is very much about experiential learning. And that's the whole reason that I created We Aspire, my newest company. It's all around practical training where you actually get that experience and you deliver on a leadership project, for example, as one of our programs, because it's like driving a car. You can read a book about driving a car, but you're not going to pass your driving test by reading a book about it. You've actually got to sit in the driver's seat, push the pedals, figure it out, indicate, make mistakes. So I think leadership, entrepreneurial thinking is so much more about having that practice and experience of it rather than learning about it. All right, Felicity, it's time for you to be a little bit self-indulgent, just a touch, because you've won a number of awards over the years. Uh, The one I like, because it sounds really cool, is Boss Magazine's Young Executive of the Year. How did that come about? My mentor suggested that I apply for it. And she's an incredible mentor. She suggested I apply for most of the awards I've received. And every time she's she suggests that, I think, oh, there's no way. And actually, she's picked many winners of this award. So if if uh, a lady called Catherine Tanner ever asks you to apply for an award, say yes, do it, do it. So she said, you, you should look at doing this. And I, I was, I think, 29 at the time. So most of the people there were like in their early 30s. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're like run- GMs of like departments and banks and Woolworths. It was a real, real privilege and opportunity to put myself in and, and get the award. What did that mean in terms of your career? It actually had me quit my job. So it was pretty game changing. And I remember the day I found out I got the award and, oh my gosh, I walked back to my office and I thought I was working for like my dream company, like the company I had dreamt about when I was at uni. I applied for their grad program. I didn't get it. I'm working there. I'm on a great salary. I'm working on projects like the Sydney Harbour Tunnel, doing all this cool stuff. But then I just thought, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? We had a side business and I thought, if I don't actually give my business a go, then I'm just never going to know if it's going to work out. I can always go back to engineering and project management. I could always go back to this company if I wanted to. Yeah, had me go quit my job. And I remember sitting in the CEO's office who I had a personal relationship with. He's still one of my mentors. And I was just bawling my eyes out saying, I don't want to disappoint you. I feel so silly now. But yeah, it was a game changer. You're a leader, as we know, in your industry. For the generation that's coming through, what are the most important skill sets or attributes for them to have? There's a lot of different ways that we can be leaders. And I think the world needs people who think differently. So I think it's really important to stay true to yourself and authentically who you are in your leadership. And there's going to be different strokes for different folks. There'll be the person who's a real individual goal setter going and setting out leadership. There'll be the first follower. There'll be the people who are the face of the organizations. There'll be the general managers who are kind of the backhand organization. So we need lots of different types of leaders. You know, we don't need everybody to be a leader too. So I think looking at what is going to work for you and what fits with you best. And the best way to get these skills is by, like I said, going out there and experimenting and trying it. If you want more of a traditional schools of thought of types of leadership, I think it's really about the servant model of leadership. So serving others and, you know, rallying people from behind and supporting them with what they need, which also kind of fits with the transformational model of leadership, which is more around coaching people to go take action rather than the command and control that we might have previously seen in past generations, um, which is more the, I guess, traditional leadership model. You're the director of four companies. You're a keynote speaker both here and overseas. How can others, particularly students coming through, work towards getting those opportunities that you've got? 
for me, it really came down to a lot of frustration. And sometimes my husband says I'm a bit angry. (laughs) So I turned it into a good thing and an opportunity and use my anger and frustration for good. So I'm sure there's things that you get frustrated about every single day and there's problems that you want to solve. I guess my challenge to you would be stop talking about it and going and start doing it. And that's sort of the journey that's had me go from, I want more women into engineering to go, okay, I'm actually going to go solve this problem, which then led to the second business and the third business and the fourth business and has had me go, how do I make change? And I see business being a real vehicle for that change. So it's literally just to boil that down a little further, it's understanding what change you want to make and then focusing your attentions into that and then getting the results and those opportunities, keynote speaking and and starting companies come from, from that. Absolutely. I think there's no way I would have been able to go speak about the things I do without doing something. I actually did have a goal to be a speaker for some time. I thought if I get an award, then they'll ask me to speak. But that didn't actually eventuate in terms of that. It was more around I went and did something and people wanted to hear about it. So I think it's focusing less on kind of the glory or the vanity metrics and looking at what's the difference that I want to make and being super focused on that. And with our events, we ran events for girls and regional students in year nine and 10 for like 10 years. And it was just doing the same thing over and over again. And I felt like that was so in some ways boring and repetitive, but my mentor actually said to me, it's really powerful because people are so clear about what you do. So really, like you said, sticking to this is the problem I want to solve. And I'm just going to go hard at solving that, that problem. So what are you going to achieve by the end of your career? With our new organization, we aspire, we're working with emerging leaders. So my first goal there is to support a million leaders to be in diverse leadership roles. So I would love by the end of my career, you know, stretch stretch goal, but we have gender diversity in the CEOs of companies. We have gender diversity on boards. We have cultural diversity, neurodiversity, where the people who are leading and creating our world are the people that live in it. So if I can play a part in that, then I think that would be success for me. And in your opinion, what's the future of the STEM industry? My opinion is that we are in a really good position to make a big impact. And I think more and more we're going to be looking to STEM professionals to solve the challenges of our planet. Just look at the most recent COVID pandemic of how we needed scientists, mathematicians, data modelers to figure out all of these things to keep us safe. And thank goodness in Australia, we've been so fortunate in the, the science capability that we do have here. So I think we're best positioned to make a really big impact if we choose to do that and choose those decisions wisely. I think there is a danger of kind of mediocrity and just more of the same. Wonderful. Thanks for your time, Felicity. Really appreciate the chat. Thanks so much. It's good to hear that Felicity is constantly diversifying the engineering industry and STEM studies through the projects in her industries. Felicity is proof that with passion, determination and hard work, any engineering student can create a lasting impact on the community and change the future of the industry for the better. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production.